Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we're looking at the notion of hospitality today. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see something that we haven't seen before and that you would fill us with your spirit to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story is that there was this very respected evangelist, Steve Childers, 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 who knows. Steve Childers, he was speaking at a conference. It was a big conference, five days, nine-hour things, big conference on evangelism, and he gets to his high point. He says, and you know what the key to evangelism in the 21st century will be? And he pauses dramatically, and they, you know, just like it's a talent show, and the winner is, and the point is hospitality. One word. The key to evangelism in the 21st century is hospitality. Are you surprised about that? You're thinking, oh, alpha courses. Oh, maybe we need to get the challenge newspaper out, go door knocking, have big crusades. Maybe there's Christian radio. Maybe there's distribution of tracts. What about 24-hour prayer crusades? That one word answer is surprising, but I think it's wonderfully liberating because it's something we can all do. It's something tangible and achievable for virtually every one of us, hospitality. Now, none of those other things I just mentioned, evangelistic strategies, none of them are wrong, none of them are bad, none of them are useless. But in the modern Western world, hospitality is becoming increasingly important. And one of the reasons for that is believability. Who are you going to believe? Most likely, your friends. Think about it. Truth is really up for grabs in this modern, postmodern world. There's fake news, there's political lobbying at all levels where they just promote lies and they're, if it's not a lie, it's certainly a very biased viewpoint. There's vested interests in the news corporation world. There's the knowledge explosion. And most people don't know who or what to believe. It's all a bit too hard to worry about whether you're right or not and because you can't trust anything. You can't even trust what social media will tell you. And you can't trust the gospel message because not everyone's heard it anymore. And they all know about those abusive priests, don't they? And also, at universities, they're taught that organised churches, organised anything, is the source of many of our evils of today. So, if you meet somebody in the street, on the street corner, and tell them about Jesus, the chances of them believing it are very slim. But, if you're with someone you hang around with regularly, someone that you spend time with in a range of activities, someone you, you can't deny that they actually like you and care for you, then there is a foundation for spiritual conversations. So when people won't come out for outreach or church activities, what are you going to do? Invite them round for dinner. Invite them round for dinner. So... Let's look at 
the New Testament word for hospitality. It's a Greek word, philozenia, and it's made of two parts. Philos is, is love, and xenia is stranger. So hospitality literally means love for strangers, love for outsiders. Let's see a scriptural confirmation of this. We go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by do so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So he's saying, sure, love one another, but don't forget, love strangers as well. And back that up with Matthew chapter 5, verse 47. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even the pagans do that? You see, showing love, showing hospitality to outsiders really has the fingerprints of God on it. And that's a strong call, I feel, to check ourselves. How are we doing with hospitality? When was the last time you had someone over who is not a good friend? It's worth meditating on whether you, or not we've slipped into the easy pattern of just having the nice people over. Well, let's look at it, hospitality, from a different direction now. Let's look at the capacity of hospitality to generate a sense of community. And I think I'd be preaching to the choir if I tried to tell you that the Sunday lunches that we have are an important part of this church's DNA. You're going, of course. We all know in Maka how powerful spending time together each week around the meal, we know how powerful that is. And so ladies, never doubt that the effort you put in week by week is important. Don't doubt that, it is. And never think it's not worth the ethic. Don't think it's not worth the effort because it is. It's the heart and soul of making community happen. And I guess there's a, some guys even make some stuff on Sundays too, so good on them as well. <laughs> community makes an enormous number of things possible. But of all the things that community makes possible, one of the most important is that community has a powerful role in forming our beliefs. It has a role in forming our beliefs. And there's the link between hospitality and evangelism, the job that the community does in shaping our beliefs. See, people will find a story more believable if more people in their community, if they're trusted friends and family, if they believe the story. Sam Chan's got a book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World, and he has a little bit there that could have been written about Maka. He says, so if we raise teenagers in a small town, where the youth group is only a few teenagers, then they will find it easy to think that they're the only smucks out meeting on a Friday night. But take them to an annual convention where they meet hundreds or even thousands of other teams worshipping Jesus and suddenly the Jesus story becomes a lot more believable. They say, wow, we're not the only ones who believe this. The power of your community to shape your beliefs. And what does it mean for evangelism? Well, 
if you're the only person in your social group who believes in Jesus, then you're easily perceived as a bit of a schmuck. The Jesus story might be true, but it's not really believable because only one of us believes that. And so when you think about how you're going to address this issue, you have to note that Christians usually or typically have two separate universes of friends. They have the non-Christian universe and they have the Christian universe. You go to the movies or do barbecues separately with the two universes. And so here, when it comes to evangelism, here is a stimulating idea. What if we merged our two universes of friends? What if we were able to get our Christian friends to become friends with our non-Christian friends? And what if next time our non-Christian friends have a gathering, we ask if we can bring along some of our Christian friends? And what if the next time our Christian friends have a barbecue, we ask if we can bring some of our non-Christian friends along? And if you start to think and to act this way, God willing, gradually, our universes of Christians and non-Christians will merge, preferably to get about 50-50. Because then the Jesus story becomes more believable to our non-Christian friends because in a room of trusted friends, half the people believe in it. Yes, what if we tried to merge our universes of friends? And you can certainly find scriptural support for that, for hospitality to both outsiders and insiders. In fact, hospitality is considered so important, it's even got a prominent place in the qualification of elders, church leaders. You see that in 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 8. There's a list there, and now it must be do, 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 and hospitable, which is mainly to outsiders. But then, if you go to 1 Peter 4, 9, you see offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's also to insiders. Hmm. Well, we get this, but what does it mean in practical terms? We have to really work to incorporate evangelism as a lifestyle. Sounds simpler than it really is, because making friends takes time, doesn't it? Merging your social worlds may not be that easy. Fortunately, in, in Mako, we have wonderful advantages with the, the community sports and the things that we get involved with. However, a lifestyle change or just a shift in your thinking might need to be made. You know, if you're going to make a lifestyle change, it's a bit like getting in shape. Sad to say for some of us to hear this, but you can't add getting fit as an add-on, as an accessory to your existing lifestyle. You don't want to just add some activities because you've already got a busy life, haven't you? So actually, some things have to be cut out so you can have the time to do what is more important, like staying in shape. Similarly, evangelism is not just about us adding another activity to our lives. We go, I am flat out already. You don't want people saying, oh, look, haven't evangelized for a while. I'll take someone, I'll talk about Jesus at lunchtime today, or maybe I'll join a book club. No, you don't want to change your lives and add on a bit of evangelism. You want your lifestyle to have and be evangelistic. 
because it takes years to form a network of trusted friends. And I've learned something over the years that if you want to be having people over for a meal at your place, you actually have to do some planning and go and buy some stuff and organise yourself. What are we going to have? So some work is involved. So I've got a, a few strategies now, things that are worth incorporating into your evangelism plan and they're suggested by this guy I mentioned already, Sam Chan, in his book Evangelism in a Skeptical World. It's got a really good section in, in that about the, the belief structures of this world and that's worth getting for that. But a strategy he's got is, firstly, go to them before they come to you. If you're going to try to get your non-Christian friends to hang out with your Christian friends, it's not a quick fix and it starts with you going to their things before they'll come to your things. Once again, that's why the winter sports events, being on the PNC, playing sport with somebody, that's a wonderful opportunity to go to them and start building relationships. The wife of a, a guy who was very successful at doing this was asked, well, how did you do it? And they said, well, it's really because we're always hanging out together. We're always doing things together. We always go to their things. And they often come to our things. So it's just one of the many things that we do together. And if it wasn't for this outreach dinner, we'll still be doing something else together. And so we should be hanging out with non-Christian friends. Go to their birthday parties, their kids' concerts, the fundraisers, sports games. If you do that consistently, it's only natural that they'll come to your things. Barbecue lunches or movies or sports parties. And if you happen to have an, up, an outreach event to invite them to, it's just one of the many things that you already do together and it feels normal. Because if it wasn't an outreach event, you'd be doing something else together. And so it doesn't risk your friendship. What about this strategy? Coffee, dinner, gospel conversations. Coffee, slightly limited in the coffee venues in town, I must admit. You've, but you can change tables once you've got it from the cafe. You can be at that table or the other table on the other side of the street. But having coffee is usually safe because it's only 20 or 30 minutes. Usually in a public space, your friend knows they can get away if they need to. They're not trapped. And all you're doing is talking about safe stuff like the weather, what they did on the weekend, sports, food and stuff. Dinner? You could invite them for dinner a few times. And then it's possible that naturally and organically gospel conversations can occur. Dinner, a bit different from coffee, as you know, because it takes one or two hours, usually in a private space, and your conversations can move from trivial matters to deeper matters, like their view on education. What do you think about politics or health and maybe also religion? And if you do that a few times and they feel that you're hearing them, and you respect their views, then they'll feel safe about talking about personal issues. And if they feel safe enough, they might ask you about your views on yeah, education, politics, health, religion. However, we have to use something called the skills of conversation. 
And I discovered that we're not all on the same level when it comes to the skills of conversation. Some of us can be a bit shy or introverted and a bit unsure of where we stand with other people. That's one end and the other end you've got people who talk all the time and are really unaware that you might have thoughts as well and think that because they had an idea they needed to express it. So the list of ways to potentially mess up conversations, you can probably name a thousand. But if we keep it basic, let's consider these aspects of conversations. There's sort of like three layers, like an onion. The outermost layer is just the things that are interests. What are you interested in? What do you do on the weekend? What books are you reading? What do you do for fun? That's an outer layer. Peel off that layer, you might get down to values about what's good or bad, what's better or worse, what's wise or unwise, like where you're going to send your kids for school, who you're going to vote for. What do you think about this government-funded health care? That's the middle layer of values. And then you might get down to the final layer of worldviews. That's where your views are about God or about life, and death, humanity, spirituality, the nature of reality. It's that underlying core of what you believe. Will there be life after death? Uh, are humans essentially good or evil? Is there a God? Is God loving and personal, unloving or impersonal? If you're going to get down there, something has to happen for the people. They have to feel safe. People need to feel safe in order to meet move down to that deepest level of conversation. So it's important to understand that hospitality is not just about breaking out the biggies. It's, you do it to build relationships. And you need conversational skills to build relationships. And conversational skills are not about sending information in only one direction. It's very easy for a preacher to make you feel guilty because you're not sending out the information. You're not telling lots and lots of people about Jesus. And you can take all those guilty feelings away and avoid much of the fact that if that's all you're doing, you get a big pushback from people. If you aim for conversations, two-way. If you don't, you're open to be called a Bible basher, aren't you? Because you're not listening to them. You just want them to listen to you. And you see, in most cases, it's not really about how well you speak, it's about how well you listen. And so to provide quality hospitality, you need to be a good listener. If you're listening, you'll pick up the hints that people give. Maybe once, maybe twice, sometimes three times in a conversation, hints that they want to go a bit deeper miss those and you don't go deeper so if you want to go from that outer layer of just talking about interests down to your values you can follow their hints or you can put out invitations you can ask questions like well why do you enjoy running there's got to be at least three people on this planet who like running and why do you enjoy that book what do you like about picnics on the weekend and if you want to invite them deeper to the last level, you can ask in inviting questions like, oh, what do you think that means anyway? What are, what are your views on the soul? Do you pray? 
So that strategy is all about being willing to listen to their story. And instead of getting worrying about what you're going to say, let them begin the conversation about worldviews, about religion. And that'll give you a better sense of where they're coming from. And if you've listened with respect and you've listened with understanding and you've listened with empathy, hopefully they'll do the same for you when it's your turn to talk. I've got a side note I put down here. I think most of us grossly underestimate the amount of listening we need to do before we're asked to present our opinion. Remember, you have two ears and only one tongue, so you listen at least twice as much as you speak. And then how you listen, there's something called active listening. That's reflecting back what you've heard in order to let them know that you've heard correctly. Because if you reflect back what you've heard, and they can correct you, and then you can get a better understanding. For example, someone says, oh, so I think I'm hearing that you're really upset about what John said about June. And, you, and she goes, oh, no, no, not exactly. I was more worried for June because she had that thing last year. Oh, yeah, the failed test. You know? Active listening checks you get. And if you do it well, people will feel deeply ministered to. They will feel heard. They'll feel recognised and they'll feel significant if you, through active listening, show them that you hear correctly, that you got it right about what they're feeling and what they're saying. Now all this active listening and evangelism is about trying to move conversations towards faith and belief. So we need to think a little bit about sacred versus secular because we know that some topics are not good to talk about in a social situation, don't we? We know that. And religious views are generally considered taboo in a social situation because they're considered private. And people are taking a risk if they talk about these things. So if you want to move into that area, you usually have to let them go first. The good news is that most Australians have some form of spirituality. They have some ideas about life after death. They have some ideas that they hold dear. But they're not allowed to talk about them usually. So giving them permission to talk about that actually can be liberating. Here's an extreme example. Say someone says, I'm a Buddhist. Our next step should be to be genuinely interested in what they say and ask them, well, how did that happen? How did you become a Buddhist? Did you grow up in a Buddhist family? <coughs> what does it look like? How do you pray? How do you worship? What do you do in the temple? What are your dreams for your children? And you can do the same if they're an atheist because atheist is a faith-based position. But the aim, whatever they are, is to listen, to understand them and to empathise with them. Don't try to interrupt them. Don't listen just in order to come up with your own arguments. Don't assume you know what their faith or religion means to them. But instead, ask as many questions as possible so you can hear properly what they're saying. Listen as much as possible so you can understand their faith and try to feel what they're feeling and see the world from their point of view 
And if you've listened with respect, sooner or later they will reciprocate it. If you listen attentively and respectfully to them for 10 minutes, they'll probably listen to you for 10 minutes. If you listen for 20, they'll probably listen to you for 20. And so one more strategy. When your turn comes, tell your story as a story. That means you have to put some time into being comfortably able to tell your story, but you might have been trained to give a dot-point illustration of the gospel. But it doesn't happen like that in real conversations, does it? When it's your turn to talk, you could say something like this. Look, would you like to hear why I'm a believer? And if you have permission, you can tell your story. Story, it, it just has two things. The things that happened, and, and then you have to be a bit organised about it. And because we're in church, we know something the ancient Greeks knew, and that was three-point sermons. So what are the three points in your story? You just need an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And if you think about it, we're actually experts at stories because we see them on TV and shows, in books. So you're probably better at telling your story than you, than you think. Hospitality evangelism doesn't mean you have to have it all laid, nailed down in a nice essay about how you became a Christian. It just means you need to be real about when it started, what are some of the key events in your spiritual journey, and what it means for you today. So what we said this morning is hospitality could be the most important foundation for evangelism in our in our society, in our time. I always said that you should try and merge your Christian and your non-Christian universes. We said we need to be good listeners and conversationalists. We said you need to be able to tell your story comfortably about how you became a Christian and what it means to live for Jesus now. But it's still a bit of a dangerous thing, isn't it? bit of a dangerous thing inviting people to your place because all sorts of worries can jump in that space there mainly revolved around whether you get it right and avoiding being embarrassed by the mess in the back room so let me give you a encouraging story we have to go to America to Montana and we're up into the high country where the wolves are and there's too many wolves so the Shire offers five grand for every wolf that you can capture alive. So you've got the two old boys, you've got Sam and Jed, they're going to go off and get some money trapping wolves. So they search the mountain, they follow the tracks, they set the traps. Several days, no results. Then one night there's a bit of a sound in the, around them and then they look around and they're surrounded by wolves. The red light as the campfire's going down. There they are, white teeth, bared, glowing in the moonlight, back legs ready to pounce. And Sam nudges Jed and he says, Wake up, Jed. We're going to be rich. <laughs> so what you and I may see as dangerous and hostile may just be an opportunity for God. I mean, think about Esther. She said, Who knows, but that I have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So hospitality may feel a bit risky, 
but it still has wonderful opportunities for God to work. And at the end of the day, hospitality is not about how good the food was or whether you got a good blend of the right visitors so the party went well or if the activities you had went down well. Hospitality is about whether you went out of your way to love the stranger and the friend in the name of Jesus. This last week I was off in Perth for a few days at a senior minister's conference and a number of the pastors there got to, uh, were asked to do seven minutes, which you can imagine none of them could. <laughs> all went longer than seven minutes. Anyway, pastor's problem. To talk about something that was good that was happening in their churches. And I was encouraged by one of the guys. He stood up and he said, well, we had a good look around our church and we evaluated what we were good at. And we realised that we weren't very talented or skilled at much of anything. We weren't good at anything. But we did realise that we could make everyone who came feel very welcome. So that became our thing. By the, someone, by the time someone new has made it out of the car park into the church building, they've already been welcomed several times. And anything that happens around the church, they are made to feel welcome in every way we can think of. What's that called? Hospitality. And another conversation, which as I was sitting there and Larry Gibbon from Kalgoorlie, that, that church of Christ on my side there, and then Colleen Kirk from Bassendine Church of Christ comes in and they start to have a conversation over the top of me, as you do around the table. <laughs> and she said, Larry, I just want to thank you an occasion 30 years ago when she'd been a young single lady, she was training to be a nurse at Wasm in Kalgoorlie and she wanted, Colleen wanted to let Larry know just how touched she'd been when they had invited her around to their home for Christmas lunch because she'd been stranded away from her family that Christmas due to work and she wanted them to know how much this simple act of hospitality 30 years ago, still resonated in her mind, in her memories. Friends, going out of your way to be welcoming, to extend hospitality, can be wonderfully powerful. And it's the foundation which makes your story about Jesus believable. So let's draw near to Jesus and draw near to one another. Because hospitality is possibly the most effective tool for evangelism we have. Because people can see and feel up close and personal the difference that Jesus makes in your life. And God works through that. We don't have to know how. He works through that if we just show up and make everyone that he leads across our path feel welcome. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the reminder of the importance of hospitality as a foundation for evangelism. Open our eyes to assess how we're going with that and lead us forward in our next step in making hospitality a significant part of our lifestyle. Amen.